Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show, your source for the latest news and trends in the e-commerce industry. Featuring host Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, Chief Commerce Strategy Officer and Publicist, and Scott Wingo, CEO of Get Spiffy and co-founder of Channel Advisor. Here are Jason and Scott. Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show. This is episode 234 being recorded on Wednesday, August 26th, 2020. I'm your host, Jason Retail Geek Goldberg. And as usual, I'm here with your co-host, Scott Wingo. Hey, Jason, and welcome back, Jason Scott Show listeners. Well, tonight, by popular demand, we are going to do some live listener questions. Uh, If you're listening to the podcast version of this, you didn't make the live show, so sorry we missed you, but hopefully you were able to submit a question through our Facebook page. This is a good time to remind you why it's important to be on our Facebook page, which is facebook.com slash Jason and Scott Show. Before we jump into questions, Jason, you had an article out on Forbes about marketplaces uh, that was... I took to be kind of controversial. So uh, tell folks about your uh, your your stand on that one. Interesting. I, I'll be curious to hear wh- which elements you've found controversial. Mostly, I just know that if I want to get Scott's attention, I have to talk about marketplaces. And so I do have this column on uh, Forbes. Stay in your lane, man. I have no lane. <laughs> I don't know if you've seen me swim, but I'm sort of a zigzagger desperately trying to get to the side to stay afloat. But uh, yeah, the, there's been a lot of uh, news and buzz about marketplaces. If you go back a couple of weeks, uh, you know, Jeff Bezos testified before Congress and you know a lot of the things that folks were interested in beating up Jeff about were the perceived to be unfair elements of Amazon and picking winners and losers and using using seller's data to make make uh, first-party products for Amazon and things like that. So a lot of people had an opinion about what should and shouldn't be allowed there and what, what kinds of uh, regulations should be imposed on Amazon. Uh, fast forward a week and we had a big announcement. Kroger, which is the largest specialty grocer in the U.S., uh, announced that they were launching a marketplace and initially trying to add 50,000 items to their assortment. Um, of course, Walmart had huge e-commerce growth, and they attributed that primarily to their marketplace, which is getting quite robust. eBay had one of their biggest quarters uh, in quite some time. So a lot of uh, conversation about marketplaces. Uh, and then there's a, a bunch of interesting legal things going on uh, about marketplaces liability when they sell products to consumers there's a new law being contemplated in california that would impose more strict liability on on marketplaces so all these things going on i just sort of felt like i would like to kind of highlight how important marketplaces are and why they're they're in my view good for for business good for e-commerce but also very good for consumers um, and the you know the fact that we shouldn't be vilifying marketplaces, which I assume wasn't controversial to you, um, but then I did say, hey, you know, there's there's probably some some guidelines that need to be followed to make marketplaces safe and fair. And so I kind of put my own straw in together as to the sort of areas where I thought we all needed to um, find some agreement. Hopefully, agreement doesn't necessarily equal legislation, but you know, in my view. Fixing some of these these edge cases with marketplaces are going to require cooperation of marketplace operators, of sellers, of consumers, and of of regulators. So I I just put a, a flag in the ground as to what uh, I thought should happen in the space. Um, so was it controversial to you? Uh, I'm a, I'm more of a laissez faire guy. So the fact that this thing this kind of stuff can lead to legislation is always uh, as an entrepreneur not a huge fan of government getting involved in businesses they don't. They don't typically do a good job of that. Just go to your local DMV and and uh, you know, imagine your marketplaces were run like that. Sure, uh, but I bet you you're pretty confident the fire department would show up pretty fast at your house if you call them. And so, so I think there's probably good and bad examples. But uh, specifically with regard to marketplaces, I am not. I I tend to fall on the side of of capitalism over um, regulation. Like obviously, there's a possibility for a marketplace to become a monopoly, which is not the case at the moment. And then you know they like uh, that that opens the door to some other other questions about regulation. But in the absence of a true monopoly, uh, I, for example, don't believe that Amazon or any marketplace should have an obligation to treat all sellers fairly, and that they 
should be in any way prohibited from competing with those sellers. And in fact, like I don't think they should be required to compete on a perfectly level playing field with those sellers. And and part of my argument there was uh, versions of this have been going on for hundreds of years, and it's never been fair. And it's it's not a public utility. There is no obligation for the owner of the marketplace to make it fair. And, you know, it certainly isn't fair on a retail shelf. Retailers pick winners and losers all the time. Um, and so if uh, marketplaces want to use their their data and their customer intimacy to make products and sell more of those products at the expense of their their sellers, like I think they should be entitled to do that was my position. But what I did say is that just like we uh, require um, disclosure and compliance on data privacy with consumers that sellers ought to be entitled to those same protections. So before you agree to sell on a marketplace, you should be the, that marketplace operator should disclose to you exactly what of your data they're collecting and exactly how they're going to want to use that data. And so if the answer is we're going to uh, collect all of your individual sales and browse data, and we're going to use that to develop our own products and they tell you that, and you decide to sell in the marketplace anyway, um, I think that's totally fair. If they tell you they're not going to use their data for that purpose, then I think they, they have an obligation to to follow the their disclosed data pro- policy. So that's that was kind of my, uh, I guess, where I, I drew the line. Um, and then, of course, there are other aspects of, of marketplaces that are pretty important. We do need to land on a, um, a liability. A fair liability system, like at the moment, marketplaces try to pretend that they have no liability when they sell a dangerous product to a consumer. In California, they'd like to put all the liability on the marketplace, which I also think is super problematic. Um, but we do need to come up with with some system. Uh, we definitely need to come up with a better system to protect consumers from counterfeit products and fraudulent products. So so those were kind of the big areas that we talked about, like was uh, uh Data protection for sellers, um, product liability, uh, and and uh, product uh, uh, counterfeit authenticity uh, compliance. Cool, got it. Well, let's bring some uh, other folks into the, the discussion um, and see what they want to talk about. Um, so it is time to go to listener questions. Listener questions. Let's see. So I think if you want to ask a question, I think you can raise your hand. Um, so do that, and we're going to do audio. So then uh, you'll raise your hand, and then we will turn on your mic, and then you will be able to chat. So, Perry, we just opened up. I think I just opened up your mic. Yes, I'm there. All right. So um, with uh, California's uh, AB 3262, uh, the question becomes um, the way that Amazon is supporting it, if I understand correctly, is uh, they fully support it as long as it equally applies to uh, eBay Etsy, Walmart, etc. Um, so, uh, a, do you folks think that California will will go for that proposal? And b, if California goes for that proposal and it gets voted in, what effect do you think it will have on eBay, Etsy, Walmart at all? Yeah. Um, so, so this is a, a proposed legislation in California. A my own guess is that California will pass some version of this legislation. They're um, generally pretty liberal. They generally um, lead in a lot of these kinds of consumer protections. And because they're such a big market, what happens is they they pass a more strict law and uh, people uh, by default end up having to comply with it nationwide because um, it's it's – so much easier to be consistent across the country than it is to treat California special. Um, Scott, do you, do you have any opinion on, on uh, if the law is going to pass and then we can get to part two of his question? Uh, 
Yeah, I have not been tracking this one, so I am learning uh, along with everyone else. Okay, but I assume you believe everyone's a bleeding heart liberal in California and is going to pass business-unfriendly laws. Is that fair characterization? Well, it's interesting. So if you look at the one that was supposed to make Uber go from 1099 to W2, Uber has done a very good job of not letting that happen. And in fact, they just just held kind of (laughs) – they just kind of – had a standoff with California and California blinked. So I'm not, I think you may underestimate the power Amazon has. We'll have to kind of see. Okay. So there's, so, so another one that's really interesting is Apple Epic is going on right now. So you're, you're seeing these interesting clashes. That's a, that's a company to company one, but you're, you're seeing some interesting things between companies and governments having standoffs and company to company. So, yeah. So I do have to take slight exception with your characterization of the AB5 law that's the the quote-unquote Uber law in California. Um, and I'll, I'll get to why I'm obligated to bring that up in just a second. So uh, California passes this law in January that essentially says uh, if, you're, if you hire a bunch of people to do the primary purpose of your business, though, though they have to be W-2 employees. They can't be... Um, independent contractors, right? And and most people believe this law was very specifically targeted at Uber to not allow Uber to have have um, the, these independent contractors and that they would be forced to give all of these full-time employment benefits to all the Uber drivers. And side note, California has more generous employment benefits than many other states. So, so very expensive. Understandably, Uber d- doesn't particularly love spending all that money. Um, and even before this law was passed, Uber's answer was to write their own law and try to get it passed. So Uber actually has a, a bill um, that's going before the that will go to a popular vote this November. Um, and it essentially creates a third category of employment. So something other than independent contractor and W-2. And, you know, if you believe the Uber PR version of it, it kind of gives drivers uh, many of the benefits and protections of full-time employment with the the flexibility and autonomy uh, that they enjoy and want today um, as an independent driver. So that's kind of the, the public position. Uh, side note you have to know about Uber is for most of Uber's existence, their business model has been illegal. And, the, and mainly what they do is they, like in many cities when they first launched their service, it was a, a violation of like transportation laws in that city and laws that were designed prote- to protect taxis. And the normal MO of Uber is to just break the law, get really popular with consumers, and then use their popularity to force legislatures to change the law. And that strategy has generally been pretty successful for, for Uber. Um, and so they're kind of doing it again with this law, whereas California is trying to give the, the drivers more benefits. Um, and so what I would take exception with your characterization is, is I don't think California blinked. They passed the law in January. In July, the, uh, the attorney general for California and the, the uh, city attorneys for two big cities, Los Angeles and San Francisco, sued Uber. And in the beginning of this month, uh, that case started before a federal judge. And uh, the first thing you do anytime you sue someone is you you go for a preliminary injunction. You say, Your Honor, we're likely to win this case, and therefore Uber should have to make all their drivers full-time employees right now. Um, and it's almost impossible to get a preliminary injunction like that, right? Like the, the bar is really high. So California got a preliminary injunction. <laughs> the judge says, like, the evidence is overwhelming that you're violating this law that got passed in January. Like, your arguments that you're not are ridiculous. Uh, you're almost certainly going to lose this case, and you have 10 days to make all your employees full-time employees. Um, so that was the ruling from the federal judge. Uh, Uber immediately appealed it, right? And they're like, look, if we have to do this in 10 days, we're not going to be able to do it, and we're just going to have to close and not be available in California. Um, so they appealed, and on appeal, the the appellate judges said, essentially, the judge was right. You're extremely likely to lose this case. Um, we are going to extend the amount of time you have to make full-time, uh, your employees full-time, but you CEOs of these two companies, Uber and Lyft, have to um, certify that you are starting the process of converting your employees right now and you have to put everything in place uh, so that when we lift this day, 
you don't try to hold California hostage and say you're taking your ball and going home, that you're going to comply with the court orders. Um, and so essentially, Uber did get more time, which is a, a big win, because in Uber's mind, if uh, if they can keep this stay until November, the citizens are going to vote, and Uber hopes they're going to win this this ballot measure in November. But the reality is, even if they do win the ballot measure, they've still been guilty of breaking the law since the law went into place in January. The courts have all already said they're almost certainly going to rule against Uber, and Uber is going to have to make restitution to all of these drivers for the not even if they pass a new law, Uber's still going to owe all these drivers for nine months of benefits that they they didn't pay. So um, so that's the whole story. The reason I know way more about this than I want to talk about is because my brother is an attorney at the city of San Francisco, and he was actually the lead attorney that argued that case before the the federal judge and won that injunction. So uh, uh, you can uh, love him or hate him depending on your politics, but uh, props to my little brother for uh, for winning an unexpected victory against the big corporate entities. We like to joke that he was arguing against two attorneys that were both Supreme Court clerks. Um, and my brother's like big credential is that he was the community college soccer player of the year. So I like to <laughs> point that out. Anyway, that was way more than you ever wanted on the on AB5. <laughs> but on this new law, I think because California passed that last law, it's kind of an indication of how they lean on some of these laws. And uh, Perry, I, I think Amazon's like sort of talking point is, yeah, we'll, we'll agree to this as long as it's universally applied. And the reason they're saying that is because they know California does not have an appetite to re, to to apply it universally. And so as the law is written right now, Etsy would be treated very differently than Amazon. So so the law essentially says that marketplaces bear all the liability for any product they sell. So if you buy a laptop with a defective battery and it blows up on you, um, ordinarily the liability would go to Dell, who made the battery, um, or the Chinese knockoff uh, battery manufacturer. In this case, the liability would go to the marketplace. So Uber would would have, to, or I'm sorry, uh, um, Amazon would have to uh, carry that liability. Amazon obviously doesn't want to do that. The way the law is written right now, exceptions for that are are kind of vague. One exception is for handmade goods, so that essentially eliminates almost all of Etsy. And another exception, and this is where I think it's just a badly written law, is it excludes marketplaces that um, act like classified ads and essentially just match suppliers to um, uh, sellers to buyers. And so, A, I think Amazon's going to argue that they fit that definition. Um, certainly, journalists that aren't super well-informed are saying that Etsy or, um, that uh, eBay fits that definition. And I, I actually don't think that's... I, I think eBay's model is very similar to Amazon today for the overwhelming majority of sales. Um, and then there are all kinds of other unintended marketplaces here, right? Like, so DoorDash and Uber Eats are marketplaces. If you get food poisoning from a restaurant, are you now going to be able to sue DoorDash in, in this model? So I, I I don't know. California does some goofy things. Um, they do some very progressive things. Um, like, I'm sure uh, that that legislatures haven't written a really effective law that's going to properly cover all those edge cases. So it... If it passes, it's going to be complicated. And I, you know, I, I certainly think Amazon's going to have a very sophisticated uh, um, public sentiment opposition to try to uh, uh, avoid that happening. And part of it will be, hey, we just want fairness, knowing that California doesn't have an appetite to to penalize every marketplace. Does that seem? Thanks. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for the question. Great show, by the way. Thank you. All right, up next, we have Jamie Hole. Hey, guys. How you doing? Good. How are you? Good. Did you just call me old, Scott? I, that's that's what I heard. Uh, I said Jamie. Oh, I, I thought I heard you say old. So uh, no. I, I like to think of you as original, as in a, a very <laughs> early and frequent listener and uh, An sometimes guest. Friend. Yeah. And more of like an yeah. OG. Yeah. I like OG. That that's that that works for me. What have you been up to these days? Oh, well, uh, it's been uh, surprisingly super busy. So, uh, as 
as you guys know, I've been, uh, I joined a management consulting firm about a year ago, and I'm in the e-commerce practice there, and it has been 100 miles an hour since uh, since then. So just working with a lot of clients on their e-commerce strategies, and it's been uh, a wild ride, especially the last six months. I haven't been on a plane in six months, which has been very, very strange. Yeah, Jason doesn't know what to do himself half the time. He's like three times more efficient, though, oddly enough. It's kind of like the the guys that never sold any e-commerce and now they're p- posting huge e-commerce growth. I'm I'm way more efficient, but it was from a low bar. <laughs> <laughs> so do you like being on the dark side of the consulting? consulting the dark business? side is a very way, interesting way to put it. I know, no, it's 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 uh it's been fun. It's it's very. It, I think it's akin to being like a teacher, and uh, it's exciting to get exposure to all these different brands and retailers who are facing similar challenges but it, it's there's 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 so many different nuances to those challenges that uh i never would have gotten just working for one company so it's, it's been exciting yeah you get to go in drop a knowledge bomb tell them a bunch <laughs> of stuff to do and then uh, just move on to the next thing so there's there's no accountability which is uh, which is nice well, that's part of the oath that i took as a consultant is to do that but uh, i break i'm breaking my oath because i'm just i'm so used to actually trying to make results happen. Yeah. Once an operator, always an operator. Exactly. Cool. What, what kind of question can we answer for you? All right. Well, uh, like first question is what is everybody doing for, for Amazon basics cables and stuff now that, uh, there's no prime day. Oh. So yeah. Um, but I've stocked uh, up on past enough. I have a, I have a stockpile, <laughs> so I, I haven't, and without travel, I'm not going through them as fast, so I'm not losing as much stuff as I used to. That's true. I haven't lost a lot in an airport in a while. But uh, no, seriously, my uh, my question was around marketplaces too, and I'm just wondering what what the latest is, uh, that either of you have heard about Amazon allowing or not allowing brands to continue as hybrids, where they're able to sell via one P and three P. I don't have any news there. I know that. Um, you know, increasingly brands are doing it under the radar and then they have to get pretty big before it, it's kind of triggered. Um, but, you know, to your point, and I know you've probably run up against this is once they do trigger it, then they, they want the one piece side of the house to have kind of the, the first shot at all this stuff. And then, uh, so they'll either just kind of stop there. Um, like you need to be one P or they will allow hybrid, but they want a lot more flexibility over it um, versus the the merchant, the, the brand deciding Amazon wants to kind of decide the first party team gets a first shot and then whatever they don't think is on the third party side. Jason, do you have any other, other news on that? A little bit. Uh, side note, I have some odd uh, affinity for spending more on cables than Amazon basic cables. So I, I single-handedly have created a company you may have heard of called Anchor. So I, I, I buy all the the more expensive anchor cables. And now thanks to my patronage, they're, they're about to have a huge IPO. So congratulations to them. Um, so that's my answer on the cables. And then on the marketplace, yeah, I, I, I think I have probably like the same, same uh, news you have. Originally, the rule was you, if you want to sell 3P on Amazon, you have to offer Amazon the, the option to b- uh, buy 1P if they want to. Um, and, and so in some categories... They were very aggressive about buying 1P in other categories. They didn't care. Um, Amazon certainly knew about some uh, brands being hybrid sellers and mostly didn't enforce it. Um, about a year ago, they explicitly said that in most cases, we don't want or won't allow hybrid sellers. And they they sent out a bunch of scary letters to a bunch of people, and they they did clean up a bunch of hybrid sellers. But it was a one-time action and it didn't seem to be even or consistent. Like, and it seemed like in some categories they were pretty aggressive about cleaning up hybrid sellers in other categories. It seems like they, they must know it's happening and they didn't touch it. And just side note, I, I realize we've been saying hybrid sellers and I'm not sure we defined it, but a hybrid seller is someone that both sells their own product on Amazon as a seller through the marketplace in the three P side, and also is a wholesaler that sells goods to Amazon that then sells them one P um, and there's a bunch of reasons you might want to be a hybrid seller. And so Jamie's question was, like, is is Amazon still allowing that? I, I do think they took this one action to crack down. But in my observation since then, 
I have seen new hybrid sellers emerge, and it doesn't seem like they're being policed. Um, and as Scott alluded to, and I, I, I'm pretty sure Jamie would know as well, a lot of the hybrid sellers are cagey about it, right? So um, particularly if you're a big consumer brand that primarily sells 1P through Amazon, and you decide you want to start selling 3P, it's less likely that you're going to um, create a seller account under your big brand name. It's more likely you're going to find a shell company. Um, and so there, there frankly are a lot of big brands that sell against Amazon as a 3P seller, you, uh, and and they do the best they can to obfuscate that from Amazon and from the um, the rest of the market. And so, uh, like, that's harder to police, comma, more risky, because if you get caught, Amazon, of course, has the power to kick you off the platform. And, and you know, that can be very meaningful for a lot of products and brands. So... So that that's the state as far as I know. I have not seen like super consistent, more aggressive enforcement. Thanks. Yeah, that's interesting. So we I, I continue to see the ambiguity out there too. So I know there are brands that Amazon is fully aware of that they're hybrids because I know they started out above board and told their their merchant teams at Amazon that they were they were they're gonna sell on 3P and they still exist as a hybrid so i it's i think they've walked it back a little bit but i wasn't sure if that's just a delay or are they officially walking away from what the original plan was was that they were going to make it algorithmic where the algorithm would actually choose whether an item should be via 1p or 3p and they really didn't want those to 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 co-mingle so there would be there would have been a number of sellers that were just weren't big enough to continue as 1P and the algorithm would tell them to move to, to online marketplaces. And then there were others that would be forced to close down their marketplace businesses. But I haven't I haven't really seen an official movement towards that. I've definitely talked to to brands who have been told directly by their buyers to shut them down, but it has it doesn't seem like there's been anything official, at least since that that initial event that you talked about, Jason, about a year ago. Yeah, it's one of those things that's surprisingly on Amazon and its execution. You know, when you when you get in the belly of the beast, Amazon is really dialed in. But this is like this one area that I can say over the last ten years, every when I've talked to an Amazon, kind of has a they're surprisingly off, you know, off off message on it a lot of times. And there's been a there's been a life cycle. Like in the early days, you had separate one P three P teams, and then there was like kind of a battle, and then it seems like they've merged them. But then you had the two separate platforms, and then uh, so Seller Central and Vendor Central. And then there, there's been talk of those things integrating. I know they've done a little bit. Um, it just doesn't seem to be happening super fast. And if you're, you're Amazon, like what's really broken, right? You know, it's, it's a pain from the buyer's perspective and stuff, but I, I'm not sure it's kind of a, 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 you know, raised as a priority. It's not a $5 billion opportunity. You know, um, it is one of the things I think that makes it a lower priority and it doesn't seem to be getting a lot of, a lot of attention. Yeah, it, it was really a head scratcher. Why mess with something that uh, was clearly not broken? And all it did was seem like opening up an opportunity for other online marketplaces like like Walmart or, or Target or Kroger, where now you have sellers that uh, are going to go to them and try and drive more business through their marketplace businesses. Yeah, what, what I can say is I've talked to brands that left Amazon because of this, because they insisted on being, you know, they wanted to choose what was 3P. And what they were doing is Amazon was breaking map. So then the brand was angry and you know they essentially wanted to... So one of the big differences between 1P and 3P is who sets the price. And 3P, the brand sets it. And then 1P, Amazon sets it or the, the retailer. Um, so Amazon would break map. People would get angry and they would want to move everything to 3P. Well, Amazon's argument there is it's a bad customer experience. And this is where they would make a hard hard stand. And I can kind of see this argument. Um, Jason will probably or, uh, argue the other side of this. <laughs> so so their, Amazon's argument is they don't want to be the most expensive place to find that item on the internet, right? So they want to compete with Target and Walmart. And if you're offering a $50 Target card for this widget over on Target, then they Amazon should be able to knock $50 off the price um, there. So, so that's... 
I've seen that cycle repeated several times. So then the brand says, well, we're moving everything to 3P. And Amazon says, no, you have to offer it to 1P and we control the price. And then the brand leaves. And then, then many times they kind of boomerang and come back because they realize they've cut off half of e-commerce. Um, so that, that argument makes sense to me. And, and Amazon will put a hard stake in the ground on that one. Um, and a lot of brands, they kind of come into this saying, I just want to be 3P so I can just price stuff myself and Amazon can't price it. And that that's not going to fly. Great. Well, uh, continues to be an interesting landscape. Well, thanks for letting me uh, come on and, and ask my question. And uh, great to see you guys. I hope you uh, have a great summer, uh, what's left of it. And uh, keep keep doing these shows. We love I love this new format. Thanks. Thanks. And hopefully we uh, we see everyone in real world once this whole COVID thing is behind us, which should be by end of Q4. Right, Jason? Uh, oh, for sure. <laughs> There's zero chance it'll still be going on. Q4 2022. Is that what you were saying? Yeah, I don't think we've I don't think we we know or agree on the year, but definitely there will be a Q4 when it's behind us. <laughs> Your argument on um, the marketplace things is interesting because I've, you know, at, at uh, you know, this is years ago, so it's kind of a fun thought experiment to kind of say, well, you know, what if we created a marketplace uh, that was just brands? Um, you know, one side of that argument is it would be like one of the worst places to shop because everything would be map priced, right? So, so then, you know, people would come and they'd get all this great product information and everything. And, and in fact, we, we see this as brands go through this life cycle where they kind of wake up and they say, we're going to go direct and we're going to, you know, we're going to open up an e-commerce store and it's going to be amazing. And then they come back and they say, we didn't sell anything. And we're like, well, it's because, yes, you have great product information, but your prices are the most expensive on your website versus all over the internet. And then they go through this denial cycle, uh, and then ultimately they they kind of realize they have to, you know, either do clamp down on on a lot of the pricing violation that goes on, or they have to in in some way, you know, create a differentiated experience, or you know, realize that's what the price of the product is. Um, so it would be a marketplace that focused on hybrid would have to have a bunch of brands that were not going to just set up stuff at map pricing, whereas it was available cheaper across the internet or that marketplace would not be successful. Jason, any other comments? And uh, um, we will do a shout out. So if you remember, this is for super long-term listeners. So way back in episode 86, um, we did have Jamie and Bob on from Durrell and uh, Bob is uh, listening on here. Uh, as well. So it's good to see you, Bob. So a little bit of an episode 86 reunion we're having. <laughs> yes. Hey, Bob, this is, uh, this is the closest we're going to get to be being on together again, but uh, very excited to have, have us both on at the same time. Is is it possible Bob's on just to make sure Jamie doesn't disclose any proprietary information about Darrell? <laughs> Keeping an eye on him. Yeah. Yeah. It seems like <laughs> it, it's, it's quite possible. That's what he's here to do. Thanks, Jamie. Great. Thanks. Have a great night, guys. Thanks, you too. All right. Up next, we have John Jessup. All right, John. Uh, I think I just opened up your mic. Hey, guys. Hey, John. How you doing? Good. How are you? Doing great. Thanks. Uh, this has been a great episode. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks. How are things so in your my- the woods? Uh, yeah, things are good. My, uh, we're homeschooling my six year old and my son went back to school today. So, uh, see how that goes. <laughs> I, since you're a guy for homeschooling. Yeah. I don't know oh, yeah. about, I don't know about you, but I, I like what, one thing that I have definitively, uh, concluded is that being a substitute kindergartner teacher is way harder than my day job. Yeah. We actually hired a teacher for her and, uh, we love her. So, uh, hopefully that goes, keeps going well. Um, Hey, so my, my question, uh, I think we all saw the, the pattern, uh, uh, $52 million raise. I'd love your thoughts on, on their business model and, you know, what they're doing. Uh, and I'm sure I assume, I assume both of you guys have looked into that business. I am not an expert on it, but Jason probably is. <laughs> uh, I'm definitely not an expert on it. I'm at a high level and, and, uh, you tell me if I go astray here, um, Pattern is a um, an e-commerce. Uh, I don't know if they would call themselves a a tool or a service. They're sort of a blend of some tools and service. 
that predominantly help brands um, price and position their products uh, for sale on their own websites, but but I think more commonly on marketplaces like facilitating um, that the the three P selling on Amazon. So they're they're a tool set. Um, they they have a, a bunch of good clients, and they they raised fifty two million dollars in a private uh, equity deal to um, uh, sort of continue to grow the business. I don't know Patterns Business super well, um, but you know I, I think given all the news that's come out, like it's very obvious that one of the the big outcomes of COVID is it's dramatically accelerated e commerce, and so. Um, I think there are a lot of investors that are trying to say, like, hey, how can I benefit from that that lift? And, you know, sometimes that's putting a bet on a particular retailer, but there's a lot of pros and cons to that. Um, and so I do think a lot of the the infrastructure um, and a sort of service providers that are, um, you know, going to benefit from e-commerce growing in all these different categories are are well positioned and have more leverage to to raise money than they they might have before. So like I, I suspect if you're a digitally native vertical brand, like it's probably harder to raise money than it was before COVID. Um but if you're a e-commerce SaaS company, um it's probably a little easier than it, it was before COVID. And and I think companies like Pattern that like aren't just software that have some sort of defensible services, um, you know, to kind of protect them from being a pure, pure commoditized piece of software um, seem like that that's probably a, a slightly more appealing uh, um, position for an investor. Um, but Scott would know better than I um, if that if that space seems like it's it's ripe for investment. Yeah, the other thing that's got investors in a bit of a frenzy is big commerce's IPO. We've talked about it on the show, but you know, even since then, it has performed very well after the IPO, and it has something like a twenty times revenue. I think is so. It's nine billion, and if I recall, their revenue was uh, like almost one hundred, like one hundred and fifty million. So whatever the math is, there that's more than twenty. <laughs> so what is that <laughs> third? Yeah, so some kind of crazy multiple, right? So, so a lot of times when you have these public company multiples that, and then, you know, one is kind of a data point, two or three is a trend. And then now we have, so Shopify is in the rarefied air, big commerce is there as well. Um, that's going to roll downhill into the private market. So, so I think you're, you know, I think the thing that's surprising about pattern is it's a series A at 50 million, right? That's crazy. Um, and then we had, uh, I always forget, is it Yapto or Yatpo? I, I always get the Yapto. Yeah, yeah, those guys just raised a huge round. Um, yeah. Miracle had earlier raised a round. I've had tons of VCs um, calling, asking about you know these, these companies that are kind of fitting this, you know, over 50 million run rate um, a pa- or a path to scale there quickly. Um, and then another really interesting thing, we have never talked about this on the show, is there's this kind of hot model for going public that it's kind of controversial. Um, um, it's called a SPAC, um, and it's a, a special purpose acquisition company. Um, a lot of times the press calls them a blank check company, which is like a really weird way to talk about it. But I would like to be a blank check company. Is that that sounds good, right? Yeah. Um, it's a way to go public very quickly, and and it's almost kind of like this intersection of private and public. So you essentially say to this set of investors, "We're going to go find a company that fits some criteria." Then you go find that company, and then you let those investors either stay in it or leave, and then effectively the ones that stay kind of take it public, if you will. Um, so a lot of these – this is happening in the automotive world, which I'm now in, where a lot of these – because Tesla's valuation is is uh, a rocket ship. Uh, I'll use that ironically. Um, you know, you, you've seen um, the the a lot of Nikola and all these other kind of electric car companies are going public, and they have no, no revenue. Um, and it's it's kind of the SPAC thing has created this little bit of a speculative. I wouldn't call it a bubble, but a run of speculation on the market where um, you know people are, are interested in these technologies and areas. I wouldn't be surprised if we saw a little wave of some of these e-commerce enablement companies kind of get caught up in that SPAC world and 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 you know be interesting to kind of see what happens there. Yeah, I think the other thing that's interesting with Pattern uh, is their. I, I think JD and Tmall are really big parts of the business. Um, thoughts on you know China and obviously everything that's going on with with the government and everything. Yeah, it's um, so you know uh, 
China out is actually probably pretty good. I haven't looked at the currency thing, but U.S. to China is probably you know there, there's there's uh, I, I've heard that there's this pent up demand because Chinese travelers can't go out of China to get the luxury goods. Um, so I've heard the luxury market is suppressed, and it's because the Chinese market has just kind of been been cocooning. Um, so, you know, for brands that want to go U.S. out, it, it actually probably is wildly successful. Um, uh, it's the other way that, that's really suppressed, both from the, the COVID travel issues, uh, but then also, you know, obviously there, there's a lot of trade war going on, but, and, and most of it's China. In. And for sure, COVID has had the same general effect in China that it has here, that it's dramatically shifted more sales to e-commerce, right? And so the China was already uh, significantly more e-commerce centric than the U.S. So I want to say pre-COVID, uh, you know, like depending on what data set you want to use, U.S. Department of Commerce, were like 15 or 21 percent of our sales are e-commerce, um, depending on how you define retail. In China, 38% of all sales were e-commerce before COVID and it's it's in the high 40s now. So they're they're literally reaching an inflection point when people are spending as much money online as offline. And so, you know, again, if you're uh JD or or uh, Alibaba in particular, you're you're hugely benefiting from that, but it's it's raising a bunch of boats. And so, you know, all the folks that are involved in in that ecosystem presumably would be well positioned. Um there's a it gets way more complicated when you start thinking about cross border at the moment. So, cool. Thanks, guys. Yeah, thanks for bringing it up, John. Yeah, have a good night. Cheers. All right. Does anyone else have any other questions? Raise your hand if you have a question. We will turn on your mic and you can uh, yell it at us, or if you want to put it in chat, that's fine too. All right. Well, you guys uh, think about any questions you want to ask. Uh, we did have some folks. Uh, so Perry and Jamie did also post on Facebook and we've covered those. So this one's from John Crouch, Jason. And he says, I love the listener question shows. So thanks for that. That's good. Uh, but there, that's a statement, not a question. So here's the question part. I'm curious what the most effective SEO and digital marketing campaigns have been uh, to increase conversions during this rapidly sped up e-commerce landscape we're currently living in. Has Google made adjustments to the algorithm? I think I'm I'm implying kind of related to COVID. Um, and then um, he says, uh, just kind of steer the answer. We're tweaking our SEO strategy for our snowboard brand. So, yeah, Jason, have you have you seen anything particularly, you know, outside of the categories we've talked about on the show that have kind of gone through, or you know, their 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 surge during COVID? Any particular things that are working super well, um, both on the paid and unpaid side? Uh, a little bit, I guess. So, so on the paid side, um, obviously like a ton of people sort of pulled back on their, on their advertising spending. And so, um, a, like a lot of people got like extra traffic on the paid side by just staying active in the space. Um, the CPMs went down, there were fewer people bidding. Um, there were a lot of terms where it might not have been cost effective to, to bid on those keywords uh, pre-COVID and, and uh, uh, at least temporarily, you know, when a bunch of big brands pulled back, people were able to swoop in and uh, kind of uh, surgically uh, escalate their own brand voice. So, uh, but I don't think you were primarily asking about uh, paid. On the organic side, it's trickier. Um, there definitely has been a significant um, Google algorithm update uh, since COVID, but uh, as I understand it, and as far as I know, it wasn't in any way related to COVID or response to COVID. It was just sort of part of the the continued evolution uh, of search and and you know Google's goal to try to make uh, relevant search results uh, for humans and not uh, you know for robots. Um, that being said, the, there have been some interesting things. One feature that Google rolled out early in the pandemic that was very um, related to the pandemic is they added a badge. Um, they added an attribute for product listing ads. Um, they've, they always had a local, um, product listing ad that would say like in stock nearby, they added a new status for available for curbside pickup and they added a visual badge for curbside pickup. Um, and as you may know, like 
obviously a ton of people shifted to e-commerce during COVID and a big chunk of that was curbside pickup. I want to say curbside pickup was up uh, at its peak over like 250%. Now it's down to only being up 195%. So it's still four times more pop. uh, It's grown four times faster than e-commerce grew. Um, So curbside pickup is a huge deal. And so a lot of um, people were able to take organic advantage on Google by um, making sure that those attributes were checked uh, and having that badge show up that said that you were available for curbside pickup. So in terms of specifically taking advantage of the Google feature set, I thought that was really interesting and some smart retailers were able to do that. I, I, the big one that su- was super impressive there was uh, Best Buy. They rolled out curbside pickup to 800 stores in 48 hours and they did flag all their products as available for curbside pickup. And, you know, uh, they basically won Q2. They had the fastest e-commerce growth of uh, any of the public companies that, that reported earnings. So, um, and a big chunk of it was curbside pickup. So, so that stuff all worked. Um, the other thing that more in general, the tactic that I felt like people leaned into that was very successful for organic SEO around COVID and, and you didn't say what, uh, exactly uh, what kind of business your snowboarding business was, but this may not directly apply to you. It was a focus on local SEO. Um, so, you know, a ton of those those people that want uh, that were shopping during COVID uh, still wanted to get local goods. In many cases, they wanted to get them from their local retailers. They they were leaning heavily into um, curbside pickup, but you know, they weren't going to go to the store unless they knew that the product was in stock. Um, and like the, uh, th- uh, searches for things like, um, product near me, uh, dramatically increased, uh, during COVID. And so, um, you know, while it's super competitive for SEO and keywords and Google's sort of, um, organic index, it's actually less competitive to rank well in a local index. And so, uh, you know, a lot of retailers that had a brick and mortar presence and were either allowed to stay open during the pandemic or had a curbside pickup solution, um, were able to really lean into their local SEO optimizations, uh, and get an outsized return. So that was a pretty good tactic, uh, from my perspective. Uh, all right. I see we've got some new folks that have popped in. If you have a question you, know, you want to throw at us, raise your hand and let me go back to our previously submitted questions here. Try uh, to find an easier one. Uh, no, I'm trying to find hard ones. Uh, let's see. This is a tricky one. This is from Jeannie Moran. Hopefully I'm saying that right. Um, and I'll, the only person worse at names than me is Jason. So, so you're custom with me on this one. Um, so uh, it's kind of three questions. So, and I'll just throw them all at you. Um, maybe we'll do lightning round. This will be fun. What's the next big thing in retail? Experiential? Ex- experiential no. kind of dead due to COVID? Experiential was, uh, the jury was out on experiential before, before COVID. Um, but uh, it, yeah, it, it it's definitely more more problematic at the moment. I mean, it seems uh, trite and and probably for our listeners like very obvious, but but it's digital. It's e- it's e commerce. It's um, fulfilling those goods, but also like I think all of these um, store fulfillment models for for digital orders are huge right now. Best Buy announced that they're going to be uh, doing some stores as as shipping hubs. Target is leaning heavily into it. Um, I, I think just the digitization of shopping, regardless of whether you pick up the goods or get them delivered to your door. Um, is, is a huge deal. And I, I think that, that that acceleration creates a huge problem around logistics. And so, you know, I think the next big wave in e-commerce are going to be novel new new solutions to try to address the the gap we have between supply and demand for logistics. One I would throw out there that's also COVID-friendly is the live streaming that we've, we've talked about on the show a little bit. We've kind of sprinkled it in there. But in China, that that's hugely popular. Um, and then I saw, I can't remember if it was you that tweeted it, but it sounds like TikTok uh, and someone else is experimenting with kind of adding a shopping component to their live stream. Was yeah. it Twitch? Uh, Twitch seems like a natural, like, so Amazon owns Twitch. I'm just kind of shocked they haven't come out with an influencer live stream where, you, you know, the, the way this works in China is these folks, they'll typically have a category. And we have some of this in the US. Uh, if you think of 
you know, some of these um, influencers that, that are especially prevalent in the beauty category, um, you know, the, uh, but in China, they've, they've just got these huge followings and they, they kind of branch out and they'll sell a car and then they'll do, it's almost like a mini personalized QVC in a weird way. Um, so I think that would work unlike chat commerce, where I was kind of like, I'm not sure it's going to work in the U S I think the live stream would work really well in the U S because we've got this whole generation of people watching live streams from, from Twitch to TikTok to, um, you know, Facebook has a live platform. Instagram has live, even Twitter has Periscope. And, you know, it feels like those platforms would be ripe for some really cool commerce innovation, um, yeah, so I'd say that's something I'm keeping a close eye on, but I haven't seen it super executed here in the U.S. yet. Yeah, a hundred percent. And in China, it's totally one. Uh, both JD and Alibaba have major live streaming features built into their platform, and it, it's the front door for a ton of consumers. Fastest growing e-commerce site in China is a a live streaming concert uh, a commerce site. Uh, and you're right, uh, uh, TikTok just uh, did their first pilot with you know the ability to buy now. Um, so yeah, I a hundred percent agree. I, I think, uh, that unlike some of these other things that are trends that technologists wish would be trends, like, like, uh, AI chat or something. Um, I, I feel like why, uh, there's, there's enough consumer adoption of the live streaming commerce that it at least makes sense to try it here in North America. Yeah. Uh, and then, uh, so Jamie just chimed in and said, my point of view is the next big thing is online impulse. Um, so you've talked about this, uh, Jason, where, um, I think, uh, you know, you've talked about the gum people having a really hard time because, you know, so you've got self-checkouts and then e-commerce, obviously you don't have that serendipitous discovery where you're like, wow, I could really use a stick of gum right now. Um, have you seen anyone kind of solving that in the e-commerce retail world? Yeah. So I've probably done 10 digital impulse engagements in the last three months as everyone, you know, as everyone shifts to digital, you got to figure out how to make those unplanned purchases and the serendipitous purchases. So uh, in general, think about three touch points where you, you might uh, do, do impulse um, in a store. You're standing in line at the cash wrap and you see the Wrigley gum over the turnstile or you see a cold can of Coke and you say, oh, I'd like a Coke on the way home from from the store. Uh, and so you, you make that unplanned purchase. So the the digital equivalent of that would be to do suggestive selling and recommendations in the cart during checkout, during that checkout funnel. Historically, retailers have been loath to do that because there's already a lot of abandonment in that funnel. Um, and the the general philosophy has been we don't want to add more friction. We don't want to add more options. Uh, we we just want to collect people's money and minimize abandonment. So they've been really hesitant to do that. Comma, retailers haven't made a lot of money selling stuff online. So now that the percentage of sales is shifting more to digital and there's more pressure on retailers to be profitable, we're seeing a lot more retailers pilot um, suggestive selling and cart filling and things like that. So if you go buy groceries on Walmart, uh, you're going to get a bag fill up uh, page with some product recommendations after you click checkout. And and those, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, those things have been uh, very uh, successful in the early indications. So kind of digital impulse during checkout is one play. Uh, I mentioned curbside pickup is a big chunk of this. And so um, window side impulse is a big deal. Uh, you, you pulled up with your kids in the car on their way home from soccer practice or whatever. Um, and, uh, your groceries get loaded into the back of your car. Uh, but so maybe there's a menu board at that turnstile or there's a vending machine, uh, at that pickup location that lets you buy a can of Coke that, uh, that you're likely to drink on the way home. And so we're seeing, uh, that pickup opportunity be, uh, an, an opportunity for impulse selling, and then the the third, and I think, you know, potentially one of the ones that has the most potential in e-commerce is uh, in-bag sampling. So, you, you, you know, in the old world, you went to Costco and you got all these free samples and you ate them and you bought all this stuff. At the moment, people are kind of afraid of, of in-store sampling. You got to pull down your mask and there's all kinds of hygiene issues. And so a lot of that sampling has has been suspended. Um, and so what has replaced that in many cases is a lot of brands are starting to manufacture sealed samples of products um, and put them strategically in the bag based on the other items you you ordered. And so you, you get like a, a surprise and delight free sample of some product 
um, when you get home. And often, you know, there's a, a QR code or something on that that makes it easy to add that to your cart for your next order. So I, I've seen a lot of interesting experimentation and some preliminary successes with with different permeations of all three of those touch points. Yeah, so a, a couple. Um, so that's good. So I'll, I'll just throw out some examples. The would you say that was good or would you say that was great? Those are great. Those are great strategies. Uh, let me give some examples. So um, a really interesting implementation is GoPuff, and you have to use the GoPuff mobile app. And um, my kids love this, and watching them use it, it's almost gamified. So so you you have this like really colorful display of products, and the matrix really appealing of the products. And they frequently go together, so it'll be like a bag of Fritos, a Coke, and you know something sweet. And you just tap to add to cart, and it almost—it's kind of—it reminds me of watching someone else do it. It's kind of like Candy Crush. I don't want to oversell the gamification; uh, it's not giving you points or anything. But they've just made it so colorful and appealing, and there's something tactile about kind of adding stuff to your cart. Um, so they do a really good job of that. And there's something about the mobile implementation of how they do it. Um, and it's especially appealing to to that that Gen Z generation. Um, uh, another one is Instacart. So they've done a really good job of, you know, gosh, if you added one more Quaker Oats product or this product, then, you know, that's going to give you a promo code or free shipping or this, that, or the other. And remember, last time you ordered this, there's still time to add this to your order. They, they've got like six touch points in there that are just really well executed. It's been interesting to watch that. I've been a long, long time Instacart user, and you know, in the early days, it was like really bad. And the things they would recommend, you're like, oh, "Why do I need cat food? I don't have a cat." Um, but they've it's been really fascinating externally to watch them, um, you know, really get smarter at that. And I would encourage everyone to look at that experience. Um, and then another one that's interesting is some of these pantry offerings. So Box does this Prime Pantry, and then Pepsi. I forget Pepsi has those two, and one's a pantry, and one's not. Do you remember the pantry one, Jason? Yep, shop pantry. There you go. The pantry. It's called pantry. <laughs> I thought it had some other name. Uh, and you know, the thing that's interesting about pantry is you're like filling a box, and you get, you have kind of like X number of things you can put in there. So so it's kind of a little bit of a gamification. So uh, those are some interesting experiences to check out there. Uh, the our intern um, corrected me. It's pantryshop.com. Ah, there you go. This one's kind of long. All right. I'm going to ask you a long one. We'll see. We'll see how we can do it. Because I'm famous for my short answers. Yeah, I'm a little worried about this one. All right. Uh, why are the question itself is, is long? Uh, why are point of sale systems still different from commerce platforms? Uh, retailers, some retailers are using a unified system uh, for both point of sale uh, and then commerce, but it still seems to be a lot of friction there. Um, you know, do you have a, a you know kind of theory of why that is, Jason? I do have a theory. Let's hear it. Are you shocked? I am not. Because no retailer has bought a new point of sale system in 20 years. Uh, so uh, they're, they're all still on these super old legacy point of sale systems. Every year, vendors come out with new valuable features. But the ROI on improving your point of sale system is always dubious, right? Like if, if you could legitimately make the transaction faster or something, you know, that can save money and, and uh, might be a, a valid reason. But in general, there hasn't been a compelling enough reason for these retailers to replace their point of sale system. But wait, you and I go to NRF uh, you know, back pre-COVID days, if you remember back that far. Yeah. Um, and then in 2023, I'm sure we'll go back to another NRF, hopefully, uh, if New York's still there. And uh, you walk in and the biggest booths are point of sale vendors. Yeah. How's that possible? If no one's bought a new point of sale system, go to NRF and there's all this fancy Because they get like cool ma- huge maintenance fees on that 20-year-old legacy point of sale system. And since it's likely written in COBOL, no one but that vendor can uh, maintain that that point of sale system. Uh, you think I'm joking. Uh, so got the AS400 cranked up in the back. Exactly. Point of sale system uh, industry is like generally very old. The there's a lot of new innovative products, but the big deployments are all pretty behind, and there just hasn't been a compelling enough experience that really drives an ROI uh, to make retailers upgrade that. There's actually a pretty good hypothesis that all this new focus on curbside pickup uh, and, uh, you know, suddenly, like, the big challenge of your Best Buy, you had you were already doing 50% BOPAs, uh, so byline pickup in-store. So going curbside, the big challenge was uh, was 
getting that those point of sale systems from the service counter to the curb, right? And that meant Wi-Fi, and, and it it very likely meant um, uh, an HTML based interface and all these other things. Um, and so, like, there's a good argument that uh, a combination of the new requirements around curbside pickup and the experience you'd want there, and again, you know, some of that window side suggestive selling that you might want to do to that customer. Um, are all reasons to invest in in new, more uh, modern point-of-sale systems. Uh, and the other thing is, uh, finally, there's a reason for all these contactless payment systems. And so, you know, uh, just, uh, consumers are, are significantly shifting to contactless payment. Um, you might want to upgrade your point-of-sale system to better support the bevy of contactless payment systems, particularly if... if uh, you want to go to things like PayPal in store, which some retailers are experimenting with, or you want to launch your own currency like Walmart and and uh, Starbucks have done. Um, all these things require a new modern point of sale system. And as was sort of implied in your in your question, if you do retire your old point of sale system and move to a new point of sale system, it very likely is going to be a unified system and an integrated system, and you're essentially going to have. Uh, different interfaces on the same microservices or the the same uh, sort of, you know, uh, core transactional stack uh, to support your, your in-store and your online sales. Um, a practical reason that you'd want to do that is, you know, one of the things retailers hate is paying credit card exchange fees. Um, and, uh, you know, the uh, if you get your own currency, you can avoid them. But uh, if you collect credit if you accept credit cards you have to pay a fee and you negotiate with your bank or your payment provider a rate based on your volume and so a lot of these retailers that have a 20 year old point of sale system uh that that's integrated with one payment gateway and then they're they're using a a much more modern payment provider for their e-commerce site they have way less volume on their e-commerce site and so they're they're fragmenting their credit card volume and not getting as good a credit card rate as mm-hmm. sales of e-commerce go up, uh, there's there's um, more incentive for that retailer to want to aggregate the the best rate across all of those touch points. And so, so for all those reasons, I think you might start to see uh, a little more traction in the point of sale area. It, it's interesting because the Apple kind of point of sale thing is so much better. And then Ron Johnson had that vision, right? You know that getting rid of the till and the checkout line was the future. It's so, you know, and then a lot of the DNVBs that open up stores, you know, they had really cool tech checkout technologies, either kind of more modern or kind of wandering around kind of thing. It, it is fascinating that, that it hasn't changed that fast. Yeah. A lot of uh, traditional retailers have like extent have added mobile point of sale for like line busting and things. And particularly around holiday in the old days when people used to go to stores for holidays, um, which we'll see if they do this year or not. But, um, uh, so they would use them as as enhancers for point of sale, but they didn't, in most cases, use them to obsolete or replace the point of sale. Um, I, I would argue there's a bunch of benefits to mobile point of sale and, and you know, selling shoulder to shoulder with the customer and all these things. Uh, one knock that I've heard that I think is a fair knock on the Apple's implementation is it can actually be it can be annoying and unclear where to go to pay. Um, and so there is some benefit to having a place that you can go and queue up and know that you're going to be treated fairly and get just look for a genius. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But like, you know, I mean, things are a little goofy at the moment with the restricted traffic and all the Apple stores. Yeah. But pre-COVID, the the density in those stores, they had a huge amount of employees and it was still a long wait to talk to one. And it would be very easy to feel like you weren't treated fairly, like that three people that came in after you got to check out before you because they got lucky to get close to someone that had a mobile point of sale system and you did not. So, so one problem, a minor problem with the Apple system is, is, um, the fairness aspect. I would say there's an interesting experiment going on at Walmart of all folks. Uh, they have several stores where they ripped out all of their, um, sales assisted checkout lanes and exclusively went to self-service. And, uh, part of that was they could do more efficient queuing that was more COVID friendly. And so, you know, it's interesting. The, I would argue self-service checkout was actually kind of waning a little bit before COVID and people were kind of reducing the number of self-service lanes and things. Um, and so, you know, now, uh, that, that would be another 
interesting uh, evolution of point of sale system if if retailers are starting to go to 100% self service. And of course, we have recent rumors from this week of uh, um, our friends at Whole Foods uh, deploying uh, just walk out technology from Amazon Go. I'm I'm skeptical, but that's the rumor. Yeah, I thought it couldn't scale. Um, yeah, it is depressing when you go to Walmart and there's 80 checkouts and three are open, and you're just like, oh. but the self service one always goes very quickly. Um, they've got like that. Yeah, bank. and so in these new stores, that's exactly what it is, right? Like that, none of the self service lanes are ever closed. So you, yeah, sign me up. Yeah, I, I have heard it's going well. I haven't obviously been able to visit a store to check it out myself. All right. Well, listen, uh, that's going to be a good place to wrap because we have used up slightly more than our allotted time. Uh, we appreciate uh, those of you that were able to hang with us to the bitter end. Um, and as always, uh, if you have one more moment before you go to bed, jump over to iTunes and give us that five-star review. Now that you've seen how hard we have to work in person for these shows, we'd really appreciate it. But thanks so much, everyone, for your time and your great questions. Thanks, everybody. And until next time. Happy commercing. You've been listening to the Jason and Scott show for all the latest news and trends on e-commerce and shopper marketing. Subscribe to us on iTunes or visit www.jasonandscott.com. 